0: My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Anyone who is paying attention to the queer community is well aware that transphobia is showing up all over the place. If you've been asking yourself, what can I do? Today's guest has an answer and a call to action for you this March. We are speaking with Sim Kern, who is a Gulf Coast author and environmental journalist who writes all about climate change, queer identity, and social justice. Their debut horror novella, entitled Depart Depart, was selected for the honor list for the 2020 Otherwise Award. Their short story collection, entitled Real Sugar is Hard to Find, was hailed in a starred review by Publishers Weekly as, quote, "...a searing, urgent, but still achingly tender work that will wow any reader of speculative fiction." We talk about Sim Kern's fiction writing, as well as their journalism and the potential link between them. Sim is here today to talk about what they have done to organize the March 20th to 27th Trans Rights Readathon. We'll talk about how you can get involved and also how you can share this decentralized fundraiser action with students to spark further much needed action. Welcome to the show, Sim Kern, I am so excited to be speaking with you. I feel like I've been lurking on all of your social media because you've launched this amazing, fantastic fundraising and community building event. This is the hashtag Trans Rights Readathon. I'm wondering if you can speak to listeners about how they can join um, and what maybe we can hope to see from the hashtag. Even folks who are thinking, I can't join, but I think that there's going to be huge value in checking that hashtag out in between March 20th to 27th. And congratulations, if this is correct, I think it was one day after you had launched, you had 200 folks sign up, which is incredible.
1: I hope that number is accurate, but please let me know if it's not. Well, it's actually up to 450. So we Um, now have 450 content creators across mostly BookTok and um, so TikTok and Instagram. Um, And we also have a group of folks on Twitter and Twitch and YouTube. Uh, who are going to be participating in the Trans Rights Readathon from March 20th to March 27th. Basically, I threw out this idea on TikTok a few days ago and like immediately within 10 minutes of me posting this idea, it just snowballed and people were tagging each other and immediately jumping in and saying, yes, I'm in. I can't wait to participate. So it's just really, I feel like I rolled up a tiny little snowball and gave it a push and then it's all of these people who are book readers. And I think so many of us were feeling despair and anger about this barrage of anti trans legislation that's trying to be passed in this country. And we were just waiting for something to do it. You know, we were just waiting for, like, what can we do? And this is something that book content creators can do specifically, which is reading and highlighting trans authors. And at the same time, fundraising for a some kind of organization that supports trans people or even some people are fundraising for individuals who are trans and are fundraising for some kind of um, support they need, either like to access medical care or in some cases to move out of a state that has basically made it illegal to be them.
0: Yeah. And and I would say, again, I have you know, really appreciate it, even just as I scroll through the hashtag, seeing what folks are, what different organizations they're fundraising for, because it's really built some awareness up in terms of, oh, I didn't even know that that organization existed. That's really great. And, you know, the audience of this show, folks who are working in education, I think there's also a huge value, you know, my, my Goodreads to be read, I'm just continually adding to it because I'm also getting pointed to books that maybe I wasn't aware of. So I think for educators who do have huge influence in terms of what are we prioritizing in our school libraries, in our classroom libraries, I'm a huge advocate too. Teachers have professional development libraries. And I think that, um, you know, I'll talk about this a little bit later on, but you even point to some novellas that I think are great, right? We need fiction in our professional development libraries too, Um, but I think it's been such a great leveraging of book talk which is a wonderful community i think sometimes social media really gets a bad rap um but i you know again i do a lot of lurking in on book talk it's a space that i love going to for picking up great book recommendations i know that you're super involved and you're an author too um You know, to what extent is it useful for you in that way? Like, are you finding out about fellow authors that you weren't aware of or books that you didn't know, you know, new releases or, you know, again, I'm almost scared to ask that because I feel like you're very much in that world. So maybe you know it all.
1: (laughs) Uh no I don't know it all. So I've been thrilled to be getting recommendations of books that I didn't know existed. There's even some authors where it's like I read their book and didn't even realize they were trans. <laughs> uh and so that's been really cool to see. It's been so great to connect with so many other book talk accounts and just kind of knowing from their participation in this um campaign that they are not just like performative allies but like like allies who are really going to show up, drop all the content they had planned to make for one week, spotlight trans authors, each one of them is standing in front of their entire community. And those communities extend beyond book talk. And and they're saying, you know, look, this matters to me, trans rights matter to me, and I'm doing something about it. And I've really been encouraging people, you know, don't just keep it on TikTok. I love the smaller accounts who are participating, you know, some people are insecure about it. They're saying I only have 50 followers should I participate? But when I see a creator who has 50 followers, I'm thinking those 50 followers, probably a lot of them are people that just know this person in real life. They're family members and friends. And those circles may not be super tapped in to what's happening with the anti-trans legislation in this country. And that they have a person that they know who's maybe cis and you know is not a trans maybe these people have never met a trans person in their life and all of a sudden this member of this their community this person they know personally is saying look trans rights matter to me what's happening is really awful and I'm doing something about it and I'm fundraising for it and I think that's the power of this campaign is that it's not that we're all sharing one link to one fundraiser to raise money for this cause it's we've created 450 different trans rights organizers and like they're putting skin in the game. And I just think that's so cool. I mean, I wanted to go back to your point earlier about how educators might want to connect and use this hashtag. I love the community building happening too. So like I'm discovering a lot of people, like you said, who are fundraising for local orgs in Texas. So it's really cool for me to figure out, Oh, these are the book. If I search the hashtag in Texas or the hashtag in Houston, I can find the people who are organizing local to me. You know, who who are book talkers and bookstagrammers who are in my city, who've got my back? What are the organiz- organizations they're supporting that maybe I should be supporting? So I think for educators to search the hashtag plus the city you live in or the state you live in, you're going to connect with a community of people who care about these issues and are willing to fight alongside you.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I talk sometimes with fellow educators about the power of online organizing. And that's a great, like, let's look at how this does point us to some organizations that, you know what? Pride is just around the corner. Maybe we look at doing future fundraisers for them. Maybe we look at getting someone from that organizing organization to come and be a guest speaker at our school. So huge value. And it's just been really amazing to watch the power of. I love, you know, you mentioned it started with one post. You didn't know what was going to come of that. And I think your point about it doesn't matter if you've got 50 followers or five or 5 million, you know, those are all individuals who can influence others. And I think we're seeing with these book bands, folks know that stories have power and have influence, right? Um, and so I think whether you're talking just to two people, you don't know if those two people will talk to two more and it grows like, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown talks about fractals all the time. so. I'm thinking about what you've created here. It's just this beautiful fractal that's going to grow and grow. I'm very excited to see what happens starting March 20th. Um, Sim, you're also the author of several books. Uh, Your most recent title actually just dropped this month, Seeds for the Swarm. I'll be sure to link to your books over there in the show notes. You specialize in science, speculative fiction, and you also have experience as an environmental journalist. I'm wondering how your work, as a journalist, has informed or maybe influenced some of your fiction writing? Or again, correct me if I'm making a false assumption and you don't necessarily see that as a link.
1: No, they're definitely connected. Um, So, you know, both of them stem for my passion for um, activism and environmental activism and social justice in environmental activism, which is something I've been passionate about, you know, since I was a kid. Um, And so when I started working in journalism, um, I, I've, I've done some various freelance things, but for several years, I've been investigating the same petrochemical corporation that's trying to expand in Houston. And I've done a number of investigative pieces on it over the last, um, one and a half to two years. I think we're getting close to two years that I've been (laughs) stalking this oil and gas company. Uh, so their TPC group, they had a, uh, butadiene plant explode in Port Natchez several years ago, which is a town in East Texas. And they have been trying to expand a butadiene plant in Houston that's 80 years old, that has, um, I believe, 83 of the dead legs the sort of leaky pipes that led to the explosion at their Port Nature's plant. And this plant is its aging infrastructure. The piping being is all rusting. We get the salty air in Houston that corrodes the metal. And it, the plant is basically a ticking time bomb. And the company is a billion dollars in debt. It's unprofitable. And yet the state is allowing them to expand production at this facility, which is in a very densely populated Minority Latinx neighborhood in Houston. So this is a clear example of environmental racism. Uh, this is a neighborhood that exposed that's exposed not just to the um, pollution from this plant, but dozens of other plants surrounding it. There's a um, a Goodyear plant just next door, which also leaks butadiene, which is this cancer-causing, birth defects-causing volatile organic compound. So in the course of investigating this book. Um, I have, you know, really been just I, I've always had this commitment to like environmental activism and um, climate change. But in my fiction, I, I really try to highlight through narrative sort of um, intersections between different social justice issues and how they intersect with climate change. So, for example, my book Depart Depart is about a trans main character and it's about a group of um, characters who are fleeing from a hurricane and they're all trans, and they find each other in the evacuation shelter, which is in the Dallas Mavericks uh, basketball stadium. And it's so it's kind of an examination of when uh, you know gun culture, transphobia, climate change, and anti semitism, because the main character is Jewish and he's being haunted by the ghost of his ancestor who fled Nazi Germany. Um, kind of how all those things intersect. And then like I in my short story collection, Real Sugar is hard to find. I, a lot of the stories examine reproductive justice and like the abortion bans and how that intersects with climate justice. Um, My latest book, The Free People's Village, which is coming out in September, that book is really looking at racial justice and climate justice and how those things intersect. And there's a chemical plant called the Valiant Refinery, which is uh, very much a stand in for TPC group in that novel. So, um, yeah, definitely the environmental journalism influences all of my fiction, which tends to get um, lumped under the genre called climate fiction or cli-fi, which some people might be familiar with.
0: I'm wondering, you know, it's so interesting what you were saying about, you know, essentially all forms of oppression being linked and that, you know, again, your fiction does help draw our attention to real world issues. I'm wondering how, again, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I I get the sense as an outsider looking in at investigative journalism, that a lot of that is you have to be such a skillful creator of questions, and have this like almost insatiable appetite for curiosity and wondering. To what extent is that a mindset that maybe shows up in your fiction work? Again, I'm just thinking of teachers who will want to be sharing your work with students and you know students often are aspiring writers too so I love to kind of just get a writer's take in terms of what are some of the mindsets that you think are really important like if you're interested in pursuing this as a pathway like here's something that if you don't like asking questions or you don't like interviewing folks maybe like investigative journalism is not for you Can you can you just say a little bit about mindsets that you see that you've either cultivated, developed or organically you feel like you've just been able to foster them? How are they useful to the work that you do as a writer?
1: That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. What a good question. Um, Yeah, it's terrifying being an investigative journalist. And I'm like even someone who's like pretty comfortable with confrontation. I mean, I've gone to these hearings. Uh, at the Texas State Capitol and these permitting hearings with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. And like I participate and I get fiery like in these hearings because it's my neighborhood too. I live in this neighborhood. So not only am I there as a journalist, but I'm also there as a resident of these neighborhoods where we're being poisoned by these corporations So, um, you know, I'm someone I think I'm pretty comfortable with confrontation and asking questions, but it's still really scary for me, especially just like talking to students. Like if you're investigating a story, just even sending that initial email or calling someone up and being like, hey, I'm doing a story on this. Can I talk to you about it? (laughs) That part is maybe the scariest of all for me (laughs) for some reason. Um, and then also it was really intimidating to get into petrochemical journalism because it's also technical and there's all this science that I don't know. And I haven't studied and I've, I've learned it over the course of these years. You know, I had to learn what is butadiene? How do these chemical refineries work? What's a dead lead? What's the carbon recapture system they've got going on. Um, so, you know, they'll try to, especially doing, Petrochemical journalism, they're going to try to in- intimidate you with the amount of technicalities and bureaucracy. This is also how they intimidate residents from becoming a part of the permitting process and speaking out against the expansion of these plants in their neighborhood. They try to make you feel unintelligent and uneducated and that they know all the science and you don't, whether it's the state regulatory agency or the company giving you their PR talking points. They're going to talk down to you. They're going to use a lot of you know technical jargon and try to scare you off by making it impossible to understand. So you kind of have to see through the BS. You have to do your research. Um, you have to find allies who really do understand it. So there's like a lawyer here in Houston, Gabriel Clark Leach, who's incredible. He's with the Environmental Integrity Group or project, I would say. Um, Maybe we could get a link to his group in the podcast notes. But he's been so helpful to me because he's a lawyer who's continually going after these plants. And he'll always talk to me and answer any of my questions I have about sort of the technical side of things or the bureaucratic side of things. So you also have to be willing to ask questions that maybe reveal that you don't know anything. You don't know everything, right? You're a journalist. You're investigating. You're kind of ignorant. And I'm actually finding the same parallel in I'm working on my first historical novel right now, actually. So this is the book that I'm currently drafting and it's set in the 17th century and it's um, about Jewish history. You know, it's it's about um, actually trans Jews in the 17th century. I feel very confident writing like the queer representation side of it but not so confident with the historical stuff or even like the Jewish stuff, because I'm not, I wasn't raised religiously Jewish, even though I feel like a strong kinship with Judaism and like we do holidays in sort of a casual secular way. I really don't know the theology or what like the rhythms of a 17th century Jews life would be like. Um, and so I often feel like a lot of imposter syndrome around that, but I'm just reading tons of books, you know, um, and doing my best. And I'm and I I know that when I get to that point in the novels finished, I'm also going to make sure to reach out to Jews who are much more like learned in our history and culture than I am and the, and get their feedback and, and learn from them. So being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to be ignorant and asking questions and researching is is what it's all about, whether you're writing fiction or doing journalism? Sorry, long answer. (laughs) No, I mean, it was a
0: complicated question. And I really appreciate the level of thoughtfulness, because I feel like, you know, you're also really speaking to the value of just intellectual humility, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we don't know everything. But that doesn't mean we can't learn more, or, you know, we can't take that as an opportunity to investigate, you know, for lack of a a better word there. So I, I really appreciate that. And I, I you know, we talk on this show a lot with leaders, and one of the characteristics we talk a lot about is like staying humble, right? Keeping asking questions and refraining from just assuming, I know it all, I think is is really powerful. And it's great to hear how useful that is to you, both in your work as a, a fiction author and in your work as a journalist. Um, you are also quite active and you've got a great following on TikTok um again listeners i know that some folks i'm maybe dating myself here but for my age range um uh, you know a lot of folks that i talk to of my generation there's been some skepticism of what's going on with tiktok it can feel overwhelming when you when you first scroll through but as a a lover of books the book talk community is is really great and i feel like it's a it's a wonderful example actually of online community as a queer person as well i think Social media has allowed me to have opportunities to build community in ways that I wish had existed, like when I was 16 or 17 years old. Um, I'm wondering what Book Talk means to you specifically as a reader and a writer. Um, How has that space been useful in helping you spread the word about your books or maybe even um, I'm wondering if it's been encouraging to you you know, you've, you've written several pieces of work. It's great to hear you're already working on something else. Is that a space that is encouraging for you as a writer? Um, and to what extent, you know, whenever I have authors on the show, I always ask them, what do you wish more readers were doing? Because we talk a lot about needing more queer stories. Um, and I always say it's, it's really hard for publishers perhaps to have their quote unquote business case if folks aren't showing up to say, we want more books like this or love this book, recommending it all over the place. Um, so I feel like I've, I've bundled together five questions into one and I'll, um, uh, I'll just pass it over to you to maybe talk about what interests you the most there.
1: I, yeah, I love TikTok. Um, these days, you know, it's, it, it kind of is a good thing and it kind of stinks in my opinion that authors are expected to have this social media presence. Um, It's a negative thing because publishers have pulled out a lot of money and resources that they used to invest in marketing authors. But on the same way, that kind of levels the playing field for outsider authors, which often includes a lot of trans people, to have a more level playing field if they can get their message out on social media. But then again, you have the big publishing companies are stepping in and sending out hundreds of print advanced reader copies to book talkers to make sure that those books that they have chosen go viral on social media. So social media kind of gives you a chance if you're um, an outsider author, an indie author or published with a small press like I am uh, on my last three books. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I would say, you know, for me, it's been about finding the social medias that make sense to me and work for me. And that's what I encourage like all authors to do. So Twitter was something kind of before Elon Musk took it over and ruined it, um, was like a really fun space for me because I don't know, I'm a writer and it was like easy for me to write stuff on there. But, um, it's it's kind of breaking down now. <laughs> um, I was on YouTube because I love BookTube and I loved watching BookTube videos for years and years and years. And I tried to be on BookTube, but there's it takes so long to like edit those videos. And then you got to make a cute thumbnail. And I really tried at Book Talk for like two years. Um, and I just like barely got a thousand followers after two years of trying to make things happen on there. And my videos would get like 50 views and I'd spend a whole day on a booktube video so i love tiktok because i can just make a video in like 10 minutes um it forces me to edit myself because i've had that three minute limit you know um so it forces me to be really concise which i think has actually been really good for my ability to pitch and communicate about books and uh it's it's actually um there it's there's i've dealt with much less um transphobia and anti-semitism on tiktok compared to Booktube, I think there's an older, more older generations are using YouTube and tend to be more conservative. And there's a culture going back to the 2000s of leaving incredibly nasty comments on YouTube. Um, and I think on TikTok, there's, I've re- just run into so much less of that. Not none of it, but so much less of it. Um, also, TikTok is very, you'll notice w- when you watch TikTok videos about people. So I talk about anti Semitism a lot and anti Semitism in media on that channel. And you have to like, when you're making your captions for your videos, take words like fascism and change it to fashion or take words like Nazis and change it to NZs because otherwise your videos will get censored by TikTok. You can get flagged for security violations just for talking about those things. So in some ways that's a little bit annoying, but I I think it also does help to suppress the amount of hate speech that I tend to get on that platform compared to others. So it feels kind of for now where I am in my following count, it feels kind of safe and cozy over on TikTok. If I blow up more, you know, and I'm passing like 100,000 followers, I know things might really change at that point. And once you your account gets big enough, you just kind of end up being a magnet for hate if you're a certain kind of person. Um, But for now, it's been just like a really positive community of readers and writers and people who are interested in history because i'm sharing a lot of the historical research i'm doing Um, a lot of the people who've come to my channel are just like interested in learning more about jewish history and jewish thought so uh yeah it's just been i i really enjoy tiktok and um i hope it continues to be a positive place what's scary about the musk takeover of twitter is like you spend years sometimes building these online platforms and then some billionaire can come along and just like buy it and ruin it and break it and none of these platforms are like actually a stable you know career path long term (laughs) so i also have a patreon for that reason because at least i can control that and like that's income it's not the sort of nebulous benefit of like having a big following on a social media site
0: yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I was noticing a number of authors when Musk initially took over Twitter talking about how that timing was just really, really brutal. I'm glad that your TikTok experience has been really positive. You're on Instagram as well.
1: Um, mm-hmm. I mostly for- just repost my TikToks. Though. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I'm yes. no good at, I'm no good at like taking cute pictures. So I just post my
0: TikToks as reels. Well, you know what? I feel like for my generation, that's how most of us get our TikTok is actually through Instagram. So that works, too. (laughs) Well, then perfect. You can follow my
1: TikToks there.
0: Um, For folks who perhaps are reading some of your books as part of Trans Rights Readathon. Where are some of the spaces that you would love for readers to be amplifying your books or any of the books that perhaps they're reading during the readathon? a um, Do you have any tips for folks who, again, they would love to use, even if they've got a small audience, um, how would you like to, them, what recommendations might you have for them using um, an audience of any size to just
1: get the word out? There's so many great ways to help authors. One that I really love is there's actually a couple book talkers who, instead of raising money for the Trans rights Readathon, are asking people to pledge to request trans books at their local library. So that's one that's free and like very powerful. Especially some of these, you know, not these titles that are already bestsellers, but if you're seeing some of these deeper cut <laughs> trans books that aren't available at your local library, just requesting them there is huge. Um, we love reviews on Goodreads and Storygraph. That is just so helpful to authors. If you buy a book through Amazon or Barnes & Noble, leaving a review is so, so powerful to help these authors. Um, it's like, there's like a huge thing that happens on Amazon. If you get more than 50 reviews, all of a sudden they'll start promoting your book to people. And uh, so that's that's it's really, really helpful. Um, and then anything that you can do I would just say, if you want to participate in the in the readathon, but you're not necessarily a content creator, but you just have your own social page. You know? You don't have to be like, I'm a book talker to participate. Just show people what you're reading that week. You know, take a picture of the book and tell people a little bit about it. because again, those people that are maybe outside of book spaces, haven't heard about the readathon, maybe aren't really tapped into the queer community or the trans community. Because maybe they're your coworkers, you know, or they're your dentist or whatever who follows you on Facebook. You have no idea what the impact of you standing up for trans rights and saying this matters to me and I'm reading this book and I'm going to donate this amount to this org. Like, you have no idea what the impact that has. And also the impact that it has on any of your queer and trans friends and followers who see that. Because one of the biggest things this has done for me is just like, I was feeling so much despair a week ago about how it just seemed like there was so much silence from cis people. Everyone who is trans that I follow online is just like freaking out about what's happening in this country. And it felt like everyone else was silent. And so now the most heartening thing for me has really restored my faith in humanity. is just seeing how many cis people were so eager at the drop of a hat to be like, oh, my God, there's something I can do I'm going to do it, you know, and start promoting the hashtag. So, um, yeah, you have no idea what the impact is, just no matter your size of following. I'm just saying I'm reading trans books. Trans rights matter to me. I stand for trans rights. And here's what I'm doing about it.
0: Yeah, that's it's beautiful. Again, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown says small is all. So, you know, I, I really appreciate that point, even if it's just your neighbor. Right. Um, even if you're having that co- that that dog walk and you're that person that you usually walk your dog with her, hears that you're doing this, I think you're absolutely just spot on. None of us have any idea what our impact is. So I think it begs the question, like, what are you using your influence for? And this is yet again, like another opportunity to show up to make sure that there isn't that silence. And um You know, again, I'm just so grateful that you've organized this, that you've given up time to come and speak more about it. I'm really looking forward to it. And I think your point about hopelessness, how dangerous that is, and that is what they want, right? And I think what you're saying about, I I felt it too, right? Yes, there's something to do. We are keeping hope alive and we're not going to be silent in the face of hate. So thank you so much for sharing the story again listeners those links will be over there in the show notes I'm going to pass over that final word back to
1: you. Yeah the last thing I would just want to say is you know I looked around at my book community and thought how can I organize us how can we get organizing and I would just encourage anyone listening to this cuz y'all are educators how can you organize the education community to stand up for trans rights you know what what makes sense for your community or any of your listeners who are maybe librarian, like what can librarians do? You know, we can have a trans rights librarian a-thon or whatever. (laughs) Um, So I would just, you know, get people thinking about that. And I think one of the beauties of this campaign is that it's decentralized. I'm not organizing everyone. I'm not in charge of everything. I just sort of threw out this idea of like, here's something we all could do, you know? So think in your own community, what's something we all could do that, aligns with our special interests and our special strengths that makes sense to stand up to this culture war. Brilliant call to
0: action. And, you know, I also know I've got a lot of listeners who they facilitate a GSA or they facilitate student council. I think this campaign is a great example. Again, as you said, it's decentralized, sharing this with students and how might we create our own version of this is another brilliant call to action. Sim, thank you so much for your time today, and I'm really looking forward to March 20th.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, you can learn all about Sim Kern and
0: the Trans Rights Readathon by heading over to the show notes. Thanks again for listening. See you with another episode this Thursday.